John says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I, I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will come and take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not be, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord 
in my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, the first thing we want to talk about this morning is what did the resurrection mean to Jesus himself? And I think the first thing that we would see is that Jesus is using the resurrection with the disciples to prove that everything that he had said concerning himself was true. So Jesus saw that the resurrection made his specific claims true, and then because the specific claim was true, all the other claims, promises, and prophecies that Jesus made were to be accepted by us as true. So when Jesus comes behind those locked doors on the first day of the week, Jesus came and he stood among them. He speaks to them the words of peace. He shows them directly his hands. These are the hands of the one who has just been crucified. So what Jesus is showing them in showing them his hands and his side is to say, you see, you're seeing me. I am the self-same man who walked amongst you in Galilee and Jerusalem and the same one who was crucified. I am the one who has said all of these things to you that I would be delivered into the hands of sinful men, that I would suffer many things, that I would experience a violent death, and on the third day that I would rise from the dead. Now, you see me, you now know that everything that I have said particularly about this event is true. And then he's going on to use that to say, every other thing that I've said to you and promised you from my heavenly Father you are to account and accept as true as well. So I think the first thing that we see here is the demonstration of the truthfulness of Jesus. Now, Jesus also, it is shown, uses the resurrection as a vindication to be sent from God. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about how Jesus was known to be the son of David according to the flesh, that he was of the tribe of Judah, a direct descendant of King David, but that through the resurrection, by the power of the Spirit, it was demonstrated that he was the son of God with power that this, this, the resurrection, showed the world that he did not come into this world on his own, for his own glory, for his own sake, but rather that God the Father had sent him, and he had sent him to do the things that he had done, and that God had accepted all that Jesus had done, and that this is demonstrated and vindicated in God raising him from the dead. Whenever we really do a close study on the whole aspect of the resurrection, the source of Jesus' resurrection 
is the Heavenly Father. The instrument of Jesus's resurrection is the Holy Spirit, and the object of the resurrection is the body of Jesus himself. And that will be the same pattern for us. We see that in 1 Thessalonians. The exact same pattern will uh, uh, be germane to our own resurrection. In the Father's time, he will be the one who decides. Remember how Jesus says no one knows when the Son's going to return. It's only known to the Father in that sense. This will be the activity of the Father, and it will be done in the power and the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit, and that resurrection will make us glorified like Jesus. Now, the third thing that we see that the resurrection testifies to is Jesus' mission. What was Jesus' mission? Well, we're told in various parts of the Scripture that he came to be the second Adam that he came to live the life that Adam was supposed to live. And in coming into the world, uh, you see the supernatural way in which he was born, born of a virgin under the power of the Holy Spirit. And as one author said, you know, we are not given any kind of an idea of the physical things that took place in the uh, actual uh, conception of the Virgin Mary nor are we given any light into the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is all veiled, but we're told that this Holy One came into the world to be a second Adam, to live a perfect life, and then to die a sacrificial death, to take away all the consequences, now again, all the consequences of Adam's first sin and all of our sin. So what the resurrection testifies to is the success of Jesus' mission, that he did all things well, that when he finished there on the cross and says it was finished, he had completed the, the mission that the Father had given him, and this was demonstrated in the Father raising him from the dead. Then another thing that the resurrection does, it gives title to Jesus to all of God's glory. When we we look in the scriptures and we see the things that were promised to the first Adam, they were certainly glorious things. He would live forever. He would be God's uh, vice agent in the world to do all the things in the world that uh, God wanted to see done in the world being uh, beautified. And now what we see is that all of the things that were to accrue to Adam have accrued to Jesus, but in a greatly heightened form, so that what Jesus receives as a result of his work and through the resurrection, it says, unto him be all power and all glory And then in a minute we'll see all dominion. Because the last thing I want to cover here is that the resurrection proclaimed Jesus to be the universal Lord. When we look into the gospel accounts, we very seldom see the word Lord in the full sense of that word being attributed to Jesus. And the reason for that was is his lordship had not been manifest and demonstrated in all of its fullness. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, 
He was understood to be the Lord of lords, the King of kings. To him would accrue all power and glory and dominion, both now and forever. Amen. And so these are the things that are the things that mean a great deal to the life of Jesus that are shown to us directly through his bodily resurrection as a triumph over all aspects of, of things that would create any kind of a division, separation, blocking, uh, hindrance uh, from us having God directly as our Father and us knowing ourselves to be directly uh, the children of our Heavenly Father. Jesus restored all things to their original intent and then heightened them beyond that so that all of these things will accrue to us. Now the second thing that we see here are, are these resurrection appearances and the attention that is given by Jesus to the various people uh, to whom he appears. Now, as we've read this account about Mary Magdalene, you see how it begins in, in chapter 20. It's about Mary Magdalene. This long section here that basically begins at verse 1 and continues all the way down to verse 18. Now, just think of it. There are 18 verses there. Eight, these first 18 verses aren't attributed to where we would normally think they would be attributed. We would think they would have been attributed to Simon Peter. Maybe the first 18 verses should have been attributed to the author of the, the text, John. He was the beloved disciple. But it's not. It's directed to a woman. This is something that we need to take special attention to. The, the sense in which the person of Jesus sought to enhance the stature of women in that time and for all time. And that should affect the way we think of women as well. And notice that this woman, the one we know so much about, what do we know about her? From her, Jesus cast out what? Remember? Seven. Now, what does the number seven mean? Well, it's the complete number. And so when we say that it's the complete number, it means that this woman, Mary Magdalene, was completely demon-possessed. That's how bound she was. It's not that she had one, its name was John, or its next one was Charles, or something like that, and you get to the seven, you got them all named. That's not it at all. This woman was absolutely and completely possessed by demons. Now, Jesus comes to her initially and casts out all of these demons. Now, she loves much. And so what we find from this point in time on is that she hitches her wagon to wherever Jesus' ministry is going. And she was one of those women that moved around wherever Jesus was and basically made the, the physical side of Jesus' ministry click. I, I'm sure that there were things she did in the form of taking care of food issues, 
anything that was appropriate for a woman to do in this situation, this woman did it and did it with a sense of overwhelming gratitude for what Jesus had done and an oversense of gratitude that Jesus included her. That she could sing something like that song that we sing, Now I Belong to Jesus. And what's the next? Jesus belongs to me. <laughs> that would be this woman's confession. That's the way she thought about life. Now we see that she's the first person at the tomb. If she's at the tomb and she sees the stone moved away, she knows it's time for action. She knows that she's not the person to take the action, so she goes and gets Peter and John. And Peter and John come to the tomb, and, you know, they're guys. They come and they kind of check it out and say, well, goodness, something's happened here. But what? Well, we don't know. And by the way, those Roman guards might be coming back it might be the time to ski daddle on out of here. And, and so Peter and John are gone. What do we find? This woman who is consummately devoted to Jesus is there. And she is absolutely broken hearted, filled with grief, filled with agony, filled with every other type of human emotion, showing pain and sorrow and she just can't get over it. She can't separate herself. She can't remove herself. She looks into the tomb trying to make sense of this. She sees the angels. The angels speak to her. How much good did the angels do her? Isn't it interesting when you read, you'd think if an angel spoke to you, you would wake up. <laughs> you would get it. The angel speaks to this woman. What's it do for her? Not much. <laughs> so now something catches her attention. So she turns around and here's this man and, and he's asking her questions and, and, and she's trying to respond to him probably just, where did you take him? That's all I want. I want to know where you took him. I'll go and take care of his body. Just tell me what it is. I'll do it. She's continuously making these remarks that show her complete devotion to Jesus. Now, this is called in literature, maybe in all of literature, the greatest recognition scene in all of human literature. She is completely consumed in her grief, and Jesus merely calls her name in the way it's been called countless times before, and when Jesus says these words, there is absolute, total, and instant recognition of the person that is speaking to her. And she cries out, Rabboni, and then just instantly, what? <laughs> you got away once, and you ain't going to get away again. <laughs> and she's got him around the ankles her grief is instantly transformed from its depth to some type of a rapture. It's, it's like an equal but opposite thing. The heights 
to which this calling her name takes her, is, it's almost beyond description. So she recognizes this Jesus, her grief is transformed to joy. Now, what I would want to say to you as you read each and every one of these accounts, we're going to talk about a couple more of them, but that's the pattern that you're going to see. The greatness of the need in the greatness of Jesus meeting that need. That's what we see in each one of these accounts of the resurrection. Now, the second person to whom we know that, that Jesus made himself seen, we know exactly zero about it. All right, that's to Simon Peter. Now, on the male side, there was probably no one experiencing more grief at Jesus' crucifixion and death than Simon Peter. But added to Simon Peter's grief was this almost unbearable sense of self-reproach, self-loathing and shame and guilt and humiliation of his wickedness in denying Jesus three times. So here is Peter, and from time to time, some of you show up at the office and you say, okay, I can't take it anymore. I want to tell you what I've done. Now, the honest truth is, I don't think anybody really tells me what they've done. (laughs) I think if they've done this much, I end up hearing about that much. (laughs) That's just kind of the way we are, isn't it? But whatever the much is, Simon Peter felt more than any of you will probably ever feel about himself. So if you've been caught up with some sense of self-loathing and in some self of self-reproach over your sins and failures, this one's for you. Jesus meets with Simon Peter. Now, Us ministers are always supposed to hear what you say, tell it to Jesus, and who else? Nobody. (laughs) Isn't that the way you want it? That's what a pastor's for, isn't it? Tell it to the pastor, which is a means of helping me tell it to Jesus. We want to walk away from the pastor's presence with the sense of Jesus has heard it and Jesus has forgiven it and it's in the past. That is exactly what Jesus does for Simon Peter. It's secret. It's deeply personal. It's never to be on the pages written down or on an audio reproduction for anyone to know about, gossip about, speculate about, all we know, Jesus sought 
Simon Peter out. In the language is, he appeared to Peter. That's all we know. Enough said. That's what we should take away from this. Well, we see that he met to the apostles, and we have a pretty full account of that here. Jesus came to them. It's that pattern again. We're worrying about, can we go to Jesus? I've got all kinds of people that do dumb things, sinful things, wicked things. So what do they do? Well, I, you know, you know I'm over here. Which way are you going? Well, if the church is over here, I'm going over here. That's not very bright. No, Jesus seeks these people out. He comes to them. He appears to them. I can tell you when I was converted, I sure wasn't looking for Jesus. Bank on that. Now, Jesus comes to them. He shows himself to be the same person that they had known. Not merely physically, but relationally. They said, this is Jesus. This is Jesus who people did all kinds of dumb things to, like Peter. You know, Lord, you don't want to go to no cross. That should never happen to you. What's Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. You see over and over again, Jesus' pretty strong words dealing with those, but the strong words didn't break a strong relationship. This is the lover of our souls. And so Jesus goes to them and shows that he's still the lover of their souls. All their fears about their rejection, all their guilt and shame about it and their failure, all of that, there's an Old Testament parallel. It's found in, the, I think, the last or the next to the last chapter of the book of Genesis. After Jacob's death, the sons of Jacob came to Joseph and said a lie, as far as we know. <laughs> they said, while your father was alive, he said that we should come to you, Joseph, and say, you know, please forgive what we did to you when we sold you to the Arameans. Now, as far as we know, Jacob never said that, you remember? What's, what's Joseph say to them? You meant it for evil. What? God meant it for good. This is the kind of a pattern here. Jesus comes to them, and basically he calls upon them to resume their discipleship, just as if this was a blip on the screen. And again, I say to you, some of you have done some things and you think that you can't, it's not a blip on the screen. You think it's some kind of a, you know, enormous blight, you know, like Macbeth and the thing, you know, the big line, out, out, what? Damn spot. So you've got the damn spot running around and you can't get rid of it and you think it'll never go away. Well, look at this and see that Jesus thought it was a blip. And the discipleship is to be resumed as if this is a thing to make the relationship stronger, not weaker. To kind of consummate that, he eats fish with them. There's fellowship. 
There's nothing more intimate than around a table in fellowship. Now, I won't be able to go through all the others, but you see what he did for doubting Thomas. Thomas said, unless I will not believe. The words are emphatic. That stopped Jesus. He shows up and says, come here. Here's my hand. Put your fingers right there. Here's my side. Put your hand right here. Don't be disbelieving anymore. This was Thomas's area. This is how Jesus met it. You see, there were two unbelievers in the mix that still need to be taken care of, found in the book of Acts. It says, first he appeared to his own brother James. Apparently, all of Jesus' brothers had yet to believe. And so Jesus went and rounded up James and showed himself to James, and apparently James then went and won the rest of the brothers in the family. And then the Apostle Paul. So you see, it's not merely that Jesus appears to people that were once one of his followers and fell away. This should give us great hope. You've got some loved ones who have not yet believed. You basically think, well, no, they ain't ever coming. Well, I agree with you. <laughs> okay. You might not be able to come, get them to come from where they are to come to where we are. Is that stopping Jesus from going from where he is to going to where they are? That's not stopping Jesus at all. That's the pattern that we see here. We should never give up on ever anyone. And that's the message of the resurrection. It's Jesus showing himself to people that look just like you and just like me. And it changes everything in their lives because this Jesus changes all the conditions that are their lives. That's what Jesus is doing in each and every one of these cases. Well, let's pray. Now, Father, we're thankful, thankful as we can be, that it's not up to us. It was never up to us. But the Lord Jesus is the lover of our soul. And so we thank you, Jesus, that coming forth from the grave... You've come to us and shown yourself alive, alive forevermore. And you've made the promises that we'll be with you forever, alive forevermore. Now continue to change us, but we pray for loved ones, parents, siblings, children, friends that are dear to us, close by us today and far away today. Would you be the God of resurrection that goes to them and shows yourself alive to them? Bring them out of spiritual death and darkness into spiritual life and light. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.